Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either. You are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. So, we're skipping the usual lineup for the podcast. There's a bunch of stuff going on. We'll talk about all of it next week, I promise, including Trevor Noah stepping down from The Daily Show, which what? I didn't realize that it had been seven years. I felt like he just started yesterday. And also, I understand why he has to go. I know he has bigger dreams in life than quote and unquote just being the host of The Daily Show, but he's so damn good at it. I'll have more thoughts on that later. I think I have a whole conversation brewing in my head about how you got to let the creative people be creative. And if you try to stifle them in one place too long, the things that you love about them, their creativity, if you don't give them room to grow, they don't grow. And you stifle them and they stop being the thing that you loved about them. So totally get why he has to go. But I wish he wasn't going. There's other stuff like Lizzo playing the slave master's flute or Vanessa Williams doing a TV series about her penthouse scandal from way, 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 way back in the day, which I was like, sis, I don't even associate that with you anymore. I guess the way she's triumphed over what some people would let define them. She very strategically made sure that didn't happen. Her being able to eclipse that point in her life, that was by very careful design. So many people have had scandals and it ends up defining them. Somehow she beat the odds. I would really like to know how she did that. I interviewed Vanessa Williams once for the cover of Essence. I think in 2017, 2018 was my first Essence cover. I asked her about the penthouse scandal. And she told me that her dad told her how you get over things is you don't go over it. You don't go around it. You don't go under it. You go through it. If I recall correctly, she used the term baptized by fire. I think I was separated at the time. I wasn't divorced, but she's had a few marriages and a couple divorces, I think. So after the interview, I was like, woman to woman, can I just ask you some things? And she shared her insight, but it was off the record, so I can't share it. But um, she was what I needed at the time. I will always be thankful for the advice that she shared with me that day. She's a true national treasure. So we'll talk about that on an upcoming episode. But this episode, we're going to talk to my friend Esther Arma. I've known Esther since January, but I met Esther many, many years ago. She has an amazing book coming out. It's called Emotional Justice, A Roadmap for Racial Healing. It goes on sale on October 11th. It's currently available for pre-order. I know for sure it's on Amazon. And it's also the number one new release on Amazon in the category of general sociology of race relations. It's been number one for five straight weeks. So lots of people are picking up this book. Esther is getting ready to head out on book tour. She's headed to New York, London, and Ghana. She's got an amazing event in New York on October 11th. And so I wanted to talk to her about her new book. This is another one of those books that I swear I've got to get my life together and and actually put a book club because there are certain books that I read and I'm just like, oh, if I had a book club, we'd all be reading it. But I don't have a book club, but I still think everybody should be reading Emotional Justice. So if you're not familiar with Esther, Esther A. Arma, she's an international award winning journalist, playwright, radio host and writer. She is CEO and founder of the Armagh Institute of Emotional Justice, a global institute implementing the emotional justice framework she created. The institute focuses on projects, training and thought leadership. And that's what her book is about. So without further ado, meet Esther. 
before we dive too far in, like I, I want to automatically just jump into the work because I'm at the part in the book where you're talking about going to South Africa and interviewing Desmond Tutu and talking about Mandela and their um, their approaches to racial healing and all of that. But before we dig too far deep in, um, I want to ask like the first very obvious question, which is what exactly is emotional justice? It's a roadmap for racial healing. And it's really about one thing. How do black people globally love one another more justly so we can have the futures that we deserve, that we have fought for, that we need, and that we imagine? Um, It's a roadmap, right? So it's designed to help us do our emotional work, understanding that as an entire people, we are dealing with a legacy of untreated trauma from the oppressive systems that shaped the modern world that we know. And all of us have been shaped by that, by those harmful systems, by white supremacy. None of us is immune, but how that shows up is different. And so emotional justice is not about your politics, your philosophy, your your, um, political worldview, your education. It doesn't explore, engage any of that. It recognizes you may be the most educated, smart person in the world, but the truth is, as global black people, as people, none of us can PhD our way out of trauma. It's not possible. So when you told me about your book, and even when you gave me a copy of the book, I was like, oh, this is nice. Esther wrote a book to help white people deal with their shit. And maybe this time they can you know, have this read and get it together. And then I started reading the book and I was like, wait, I got to do work too as a black person? Well, why I got to do work? <laughs> so the way I break it down is that black people need healing and white people have got work to do. That's the way that I look at it and explore it. Our healing is specifically about our emotional relationship to power, to blackness and to whiteness, to specifically white supremacy and how it's shaped us. There is no sector that white supremacy hasn't shaped in our modern world. And that shaping has specific consequences and it shows up. It shows up in how we engage. It shows up in our relationship to blackness. It shows up in how we do what I call, we want to audition each other's blackness. The blackness in America is not the same as the blackness in Britain. It's not the same as the blackness in, in Africa. And that separation, the idea that, for example, an American blackness is seen, seems to be and is treated and is considered as almost um, criminal and an African blackness is kind of wretched and poverty stricken. All of that is shaped by the narratives of white supremacy. And so in order for us to be together in ways that are meaningful, we have healing to do. And that healing is about our emotional relationships to um, white supremacy and how those connections are sustained in ways that we're not even always necessarily conscious of. Um, And so the idea of the book was saying that actually we all have our work to do. The thing is, our work is not the same. And the trouble is, it's treated as if it is. Specifically, it's treated as if black people would just do a certain amount of work as an always more work, the world would be fine. And emotional justice is saying that that's just not the case. We've all been shaped by white supremacy, but that shaping is different. There's unlearning for us to do. And I think especially, you know, one of the chapters about black women is to do with our relationship to labor, value and worth. That the idea of your value is solely connected to your productivity and to your labor. 
And that no matter how much labor you do, it's not enough. So grind culture becomes this kind of gangster glorious thing when people are in burnout and exhausted and depleted and breaking down all the things. And so that's what emotional justice is saying is that we've got to actually identify who has what to do and then articulate what that thing is so that we can actually get on, get on and do it. I appreciated the the part about black women because, you know, again, I was like, wait, what work do I have to do? Um, and it was actually do less, sis, do less. That part. Hashtag. Hashtag do less. That part. Hashtag do less. Soft life. Hashtag soft life. <laughs> right. And I appreciated the part about, and I wanted you to speak further on this because I think people do it in so many unconscious ways. And I actually talked about something related to it um, on last episode of the podcast. But you were talking about the way in which black women specifically tend to coddle whiteness. I don't know if you said the word coddle, right? but you were, you were saying that we feel like we have to make people feel okay, even though they're people that harmed us. 100%. So I call it um, black women are nurtured to be emotional mammies. So we all know the mammy is the, the traditionally large, large, dark-skinned Southern woman who took care of white people's kids, took care of the family, and was really happy to just make sure that these white folks are taken care of, that they're happy, that they're soothed. There's nothing that she couldn't do that was enough. And so with emotional justice, we talk about emotional mammies. Emotional mammies is the idea, it's a specifically gendered thing, that black women should take care of the feelings of white folks, no matter the cost or consequence to them. So they have caused the harm, but the expectation is that black women should take care of the feelings and always soothe and reassure uh, white people that they're, yes, they're good people, know that the thing that they did doesn't make them a bad person. And the cost to black women's emotional health, from what I call this emotional rearranging of yourself when somebody has done you harm, is serious. But it's connected historically, right? So we know that labor historically, was always about a disparity, that there was um, labor by black people in service of whiteness. So with emotional justice, we talk about emotional labor in service of whiteness. And what we actually need to do is emotional care in service of ourselves. And the challenge is that the, w- the way history has worked is that kind of emotional labor gains you thing, gains you things, it rewards you things. So white supremacy always demands the more you're unlike yourself, the more you don't take care of yourself, the more you center whiteness, the further you will get in terms of how whiteness defines success. And we've seen that. And the reality is of being an emotional mammy is it makes you sick. It makes you physically sick, emotionally sick, intellectually sick. It makes you sick because you are literally contorting your spirit, your heart, your soul, your belly to make space for harm. And it's not like it's a one and done. It's an ongoing way of being. It's why um, emotional justice critiques diversity, because the nature of the entire diversity model is based on um, black people, but particularly black women doing emotional, being emotional mammies. And where they're resistant, where they're unwilling to do that, it's not like, okay, so I'm not willing to do that, that's fine. No, the refusal to be an emotional mammy comes with repercussions. And those repercussions can affect black women's livelihoods, possibility of promotion, all of the things. Um, and so without really uh, engaging and interrogating that, we will continue to 
um, society continues to devise these spaces and structures like DEI that are about the same thing with a different name. And it's time for us to stop being anybody's emotional mammy. It's never served anybody other than a world outside of ourselves. And especially with COVID, that trifecta of pandemic, police brutality, and, and protests, the loneliness, the grief, all of that, and then being expected to do copious amounts of emotional labor in that space, it's untenable, it's unacceptable, it has got to go. Ain't nobody needs to be an emotional mammy in 2022. Hell no. I was thinking about how prevalent it is to see Black women specifically forgiving only because for the last maybe so week or so, there's been a clip circulating online that is, it's an outtake from this um, this Dahmer series. And one of the murder victims, his sister, testified, not testified, she gave a victim impact statement. And Dahmer just sat there while she was talking about her brother, like she wasn't in, even in the room, wouldn't look at her, totally ignored her. And this woman just completely flips out and goes off in the way that you would genuinely expect someone to feel if someone had murdered their brother, you know? And I was thinking about how rarely we get to see people genuinely display the emotions that you expect them to feel in a situation like that. I was talking about this on last episode about how often, you know, there's a a black man, black woman too, but murdered by the police or brutalized by the police. And you literally see the parents, especially the mother on TV the next day talking about forgiveness and telling people don't tear down the city, don't riot, like we need to wait for an investigation, but doing emotional mammying. Um, I hate to refer to a grieving mother as such, but I'm just speaking of, of the idea of the act. Um, but placating, essentially, and not giving you the raw emotion that you would expect from someone whose child was just either murdered or abused. Right, right. And that we, what we have to remember is there is a cost for those mothers who are not measured in their tone and controlled in their grief. Yeah. That they are, the, the, the work they're trying to do to humanize their, first of all, the idea that the, your, your child has been slaughtered in the most brutal way. And then you have to really humanize their yeah. corpse. You have to humanize them. And who are you really appealing to? You're always appealing to white yeah. people. And it is that, that process that is rooted in a history of placating and assuring and reassuring white people that you're, everything is fine, that they're fine, that you don't feel a particular way. It is such a deadly, dangerous, life-threatening lie. And part of what is happening now is just the, the genuine emotions that are emerging from the way COVID has highlighted health disparities, from the grief of losing people at ridiculous rates and then watching this cycle of brutality happen. You're, what, you're seeing all this emotion come up to the surface in a very, very natural way. And what it's created is this other narrative, particularly by white women saying, we feel like the world is kind of coming for us. Um, and I remember having this conversation with a white woman about that, that and I said, no you're just witnessing a human interaction, mm -hmm. that the natural response to that level of escalating loss and violence would be an explosion. That's just human. You're so conditioned to expect black people, black women to control their feelings in order to engage you. 
Um, and then to really to, to, to police their own emotions and then to have their emotions policed. And so to your point, 101%. And the reason I connect it to emotional justice, it goes back to me to South Africa. And the idea of a, the, the notion of a healing that still centers whiteness, it's still about how they do or don't feel, how they receive the emotion that you feel, that they can receive it, that your um, expression of anger, rage, pain, exhaustion, I mean, just absolute screaming um, pain um, must be, you know, modified, coddled, changed, uh, rearranged in order to be heard. It is offensive. It is exhausting. It is painful. And it's deeply, deeply traumatizing. So I think about that. I think about when, um, and, and, you know, I like that you said I'd never call a grieving mother an emotional mammy because I wouldn't either. But what I'm absolutely talking about is that we are conditioned and nurtured as black people and definitely as black women that you've got to cater to. You've got to manage your emotions to be heard by white people, that it's not safe to just feel, to just express and to just be. And that's internalized in a way and it manifests in a way. Do you know what I mean? And then those emotions are policed. And so, and I saw that um, Dharma moment. And I remember I jumped up when she started mm-hmm. screaming because I was like, that's exactly how I feel. That's exactly how I feel. Think about how many mothers you've never seen do that with all the terrible killings that we've um, had to, particularly with social media, witness where we've seen parents at um, press conferences. And it's such a manifestation of how the trauma of whiteness shows up in our emotional worlds, that at the height of such loss, you're still, you still have to police your emotions and manage your grief. It's obscene. It's obscene. It's absurd. It's unacceptable. Yeah. Can we talk about how that shows up for men as well? I didn't know that detail about uh, Desmond Tutu and the forgiveness and the same thing with Nelson Mandela. You're talking about how a, a large part of, I don't know if you said it this way, but a large part of, of Mandela's global appeal is that his capacity to forgive, but the details of that forgiveness, it's like, but what about, like, it's forgiving white people for their atrocities against black people, but it's like, but what about the black people who were harmed? Yes, I mean, part of Mandela being seen as a global icon was that specifically with apartheid, you were really talking about emotional labor and service of white insecurity and economic anxiety. Um, now, I'm very clear that I, and what I say in the book is I don't judge what they did because the political circumstances in which they did it meant they were trying to avert what was going to be an explosion of violence. But what I absolutely do say is that a racial healing model has to evolve and be updated to recognize where we are. And what was clear about uh, the racial healing model of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is it 101% centered whiteness. I interviewed Desmond Tutu and he literally said, and I'm quoting him because I always remember that he said this, that South Africa would be a Mecca for whites, unquote. And I was shocked and I was appalled. And when I started asking him, why would we be spending so much time worrying about what this is for white people when apartheid is an entire um, legislated structure that is about um, a punitive approach to black people, black life, black future, black dreams, black everything. Um, and then he, he, he'd shifted, but his shift was one of discomfort. He'd been doing interview after interview after interview, and it was the same narrative 
that this is about making sure that white people feel safe. And I remember saying to him, what about how black people feel? And the reason, and it, the reason that I asked that question was because before I'd gone to South Africa, I was in Philadelphia. And I was in Philadelphia for the Million Woman March. And the keynote speaker was Winnie Mandela. And I had the blessing to meet her and to share with her that I was going to South Africa to do, the, um, to do this work on racial healing. And um, she asked me who I was going to interview, and I gave her my list. I didn't really have a good, a, a particularly strong gender analysis at the time at all. And she was the one that said to me, interesting, very high-profile people, all men. And I just was like, it did not even occur to me. And what she said to me is, now I want you to interview them, but I want you to spend time with the women first. Go and talk to the women and listen to the women first, and then go and talk to the men. And um, I had the privilege of listening to Steve Biko, Steve Biko's widow, not Steve Biko, he's dead, Steve Biko's widow. Um, and she was suing the government, saying, hell no, not only do I not forgive that, um, not, and I, I don't forgive, there is no reconciliation. And what we need is a justice. And for me, it's where I began to connect the idea of justice, even with what is a very emotional and deep process. Because Part of what happened when I was speaking to Desmond Tutors, when I said, okay, so then we talk about reparations or repair, they were so limited in the idea. So the example he gave was, so he said, so if a man has limited use of his body and, for example, needs a wheelchair because of violence he suffered in apartheid, then we could maybe find a sponsor to help that man get that repair. And I was like, wait a second. Legislation changed the lives of black people. Policy did. It was these entire structures that totally transformed life. So why is repair individual, but apartheid was institutional? That don't make no sense. Um, but the other part of it was there was never a national conversation about black people forgiving black people, forgiving themselves and forgiving each other. And there never has been. There never has been, um, first of all, South Africa, what we need to do is look at each other and forgive ourselves for everything we might have had to do to get through this space. And that, the fact that there was never a national conversation that centered black people said to me, this is not a racial healing model that serves humanity. Because if the only part of humanity that you serve is white, then that is not a human racial healing model that we should be using in the 21st century, in 2022. For sure. I love what you're saying. I love the idea of what you're trying to do here. I question if it's possible because I'm just thinking, and this is just because it's the most recent example, but I'm thinking of the way that we just, in America, had a whole national meltdown about a Black woman being a fictional fish. If we can't even right. deal with a Black fictional fish, how do we actually deal with, with racial healing, econ uh, not economic, emotional justice in our actual real lives? You know what, though, I think black people's work is to imagine the future that you can't even see. I mean, that's literally what we did. You know, if we, if we think historically when Harriet Tubman was running for her life, fleeing enslavement, she had no idea what was coming in the future, but she was absolutely going towards liberation. She was absolutely not staying there. And I think you, you run your particular race with a baton that you're supposed to hold. And mine for me is absolutely about emotional justice and fighting for a racial healing that centers black people, which is what emotional justice is as a roadmap, that it really centers black people as an act of humanity. And part of it is inviting us to center ourselves. And it's, it's actually harder in ways that we, um, we don't think about because the act of centering whiteness 
is so ingrained because this narrative of whiteness that has taught all of us how the world came to be and that whiteness is the world and it saved the world and it built the world and black people were basically um, savages that needed saving and civilizing. That's a narrative that that everyone's been taught, black, brown, white, indigenous. And so um, all of these outrages are real manifestations of what it means to not be centered. And they're indicative, though, also of the change that is happening. The fact that the books are being banned to the extent that they're being banned, the fact that they're being written, all of those things are important measures and steps of progress. But there is no, it's an entire world that is centered on whiteness. And this is what I mean by it's not about your emotional, it's not about your political philosophy, but your emotional worldview. Because philosophically, the most ridiculous thing is that a fictional character being black would cause the levels of outrage, every cable station talking about it, all over social media. It's extraordinary. But it's not about that. It's about what does it mean when I'm not the center of every space that I walk into? Who am I if I'm not the center of every space that you are part of? Who am I as a white person if I'm not centered in the lives of black people? Because that's part of what white supremacy has constructed, that it is the center of everything. And so it's always that, you know, you know that phrase, um, Demetrius, somebody says black girls rock and somebody always says, well, white girls rock too. It's the idea that there's, you cannot occupy space unless you're the center of that space. But that doesn't mean we don't construct and build and think about what it means to center ourselves and move and work towards that. So I think you always, and for me, definitely, I'm fighting for imagining, building, working towards um, a future um, that I want to see. Whether I get to live in it or not, I think that that's part of our ancestral inheritance, honestly. Thank you. Because I was like, girl, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I mean, I love you. I feel you. I ride with you. But I was like, you've got to envision. You've got to envision. I get it. I get it. I get it. For you, just for you, like for you personally, you're going on your own. You're here in Ghana. You're living in Ghana. You're moving from one space to another. What you envisioned and what is happening is two different things, but you had to envision something for yourself that you could not see. And I'm saying that what, you, what you're doing individually is what I'm thinking about structurally for us as an, as an entire global black people, because that's literally how we move. You're moving with a certain level of faith because you don't know what's coming, but you're also moving towards a, a, a liberation for yourself that is about a home that is um, refuge as opposed to one that comes with repercussions where there's a real belonging and not this tension of back and forth where your presence is always contested territory. Do you know what I mean? So you're envisioning by your very choices and experiences. And I'm talking about envisioning just in a, in terms of us as a people, as opposed to you as a person connected to the same thing. Got it. In your pages, you talk about what black men need to do. Right. One of the things that you pointed out, was they need to center black women. And you talked about how I think whiteness and patriarchy and all of those things are are so deeply intertwined. Yeah, so um, emotional justice is a a roadmap and framework for um, black people that is saying to us that we all have different things to do to move towards our liberation. And then I'm specific when I talk about us as black people, that black men have their emotional work to do that is theirs and it is no one else's. And that um, we live in a world where black men get to um, 
feed their masculinity and their traumas through the bodies and the, the bellies and the worlds and the lives of black women and then nurtured within a society that says masculinity is about a subjugation, it's about a dominion. That that toxic white masculinity is about a certain kind of power. And then that power requires you have power over somebody. We see that with the craziness of the abortion debate, power over a woman's body, power over black people's lives. That the relationship between masculinity and power is about what makes you a man. So the idea is if you don't have power over somebody, what kind of man are you? So what does that say to um, black men who are being nurtured into masculinity where the idea of your manhood is connected to you subjugating somebody or having power over them? It is not just a, a masculinity definition that's deeply problematic. It's one that, that we're all nurtured into having. And what it does in terms of black men is create what I call a traumatized masculinity and the expectation that they should flex that emotional trauma through the bodies of black women. And that black women being resistant to that creates the kind of tension. Because actually what you're saying to somebody is, why won't you allow me to pour my trauma all over you and still say you love me, despite the fact that I've just done that and caused you incredible levels of harm. And that, that we don't get liberation that day. We, there's no healing there. There just isn't. Black women are not responsible for white supremacy. Black men are not responsible for white supremacy, but we're both shaped by it. We're both impacted by it and we're definitely influenced by it. So the work that we have to do is ours. The work that black men have to do is theirs. And they don't, um, them not doing their work doesn't take them any, uh, them not doing their work and telling black women what they should or shouldn't be doing is also not any kind of healing model that anybody should acknowledge, engage, or respect. It doesn't make any sense. And in fact, the, the, um, uh, I'm writing a book. So after this book, there's two specific other books. One is about loss through the lens, loss and grief through the lens of black women. But the other one is specifically about emotional justice for, for black men and really expanding this idea of what it means to be haunted um, by um, a violence and a masculinity definition that teaches you that you don't have value or worth and to be simultaneous, simultaneously hunted because you're seen as having so much power and being this very predatory person. So the, these contradictions also shape how you are. But um, black, mean, black men both need to do their emotional work and to do that, you need to build an emotional vocabulary. All of us do. And so emotional justice is saying we all need a support mechanism to do that. But that doesn't negate the fact that you have your work to do, and that nobody else can can do it for you. You talked about the criminality, the perception of uh, Black Americans as criminal, and the perception of Africans as, I don't know what the word you use, was it despondent, destitute? Yeah, wretched. Wretched. How do we change those perceptions? And I think that we have of each other, and that also that we have of ourselves. One of the things I'm doing with emotional justice is creating what I call the love languages of emotional justice. And the one for us as black people, I call it revolutionary black grace. That we have been nurtured to extend a grace to whiteness that we don't extend to each other or to ourselves in any way, real shape or form. And that what we absolutely have to do is turn to each other 
and not decide who somebody is before you know who somebody is. I've lived in, like I'm talking to you, we're both in Ghana right now. Um, we both lived in um, New York before that I was in London. I've heard black people, whether African-American, African, of different spaces, have words and language about other black people that would just break your heart. And, and it's not that they don't have the same language about whiteness, but there is a willingness to give whiteness grace that we do not give each other, we don't extend to each other, and we don't offer each other that at all. Revolutionary black grace is about saying, what we have been through as a people, there is nothing ordinary about that. That we need a grace that's really specific to our experiences. And that part of that experience is honoring that we have a blackness connected to the continent of Africa, but our blackness has also been shaped by all the geographical locations where we've been raised, where our people have been raised, and where we were taken, and where we ended up. And so there is a blackness that is shaped by America that is specific to that space. There is a blackness that's shaped by Britain that's specific to that space. There is a blackness here in Ghana that is shaped by what it means to be here. All of that has one thing in common and one connection, and that is the continent of Africa. And so part of what I'm saying is that you may not feel connected to Africa, but it's about being connected to the best part of your own blackness and then recognizing that somebody else has the best part of their blackness as well. And what if we started there? We started by giving each other some grace because the way we uh, refuse to do that, the way that we fail to do that, manifests not just in an emotional economy, but in our actual economy and how we engage and how we invest and how we don't invest and how we support and how we don't support. In all of those things, those things manifest. And so um, that's our healing work to do is to look at each other and see each other as um, family. You don't always love family, but you may definitely protect it. You may ensure that it's defended. You may ensure that nobody else can mess with it. There are things that you can do. And I don't think it's about some unnecessarily kind of idealistic utopian idea of blackness. No, I'm saying that we have conflict and tension and pain and resentment and trauma because of the history that we've lived. But that doesn't mean that we don't um, extend each other grace. And that is part of our work is to walk through those feelings and those emotions and get to a place where we can be at grace, but to give ourselves the kind of chances and the opportunity and the time that we have so often reserved for whiteness. Sometimes we really reserve the best of ourselves for whiteness and we save the worst of ourselves for one another. There is this conversation between, I want to say, James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni, mm. and he's trying to explain, you know what I'm talking about? I do. Why do you give me I guess your leftover, like you give everyone else your best and you save your worst for me because you love me or because I love you. And that's like the total wrong approach to it. I think I'm saying that right. 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 And he says, um, because when I come to you, I'm being, you know, honest. And she says, no, no. Why should I get the part that's the worst part? Yeah. Pretend with me. Um, and I think that's such a powerful, moving and painful moment. I love that conversation and it's also such a painful conversation because that's what I mean by that's what James Wilden was talking about. You giving your very best to whiteness, being exhausted by the fact that it's a lie because it's really anger and resentment and hatred and all the ways whiteness makes you feel less than. And then you bring all of that depletion and exhaustion and despair back into your home. That's what I mean. We serve. And then what we do, you know, we turn harm 
into a love language in terms of how we treat each other as black people sometimes and as black women and black men. We can't, there's no healing there for us. And so what would it mean for us to turn to each other in love and justice and say, I reserve my, the best of myself for you, even when that's hard. And I turn and give the rage and all of the things that are absolutely valid, do that to white supremacy. You know, come for white supremacy. Don't come for black women. Be mad at the thing you're actually mad about. Because it's really not me. I didn't do anything. But you're mad about so much else. And then I get it. Right. Right. And it's because because it's not safe for them to be mad in whiteness. And it's safe for them to be mad within black spaces and black women. That is part of what I mean by um, black men needing um, an expanded emotional vocabulary to be able to even find language to say that. Because they know it's not safe to express that kind of emotion in terms of whiteness. And so they don't. They reserve it for the space where they feel safest. And so what does it mean to actually speak the truth about being feeling terrified or terrorized or feeling less than a man or feeling scared? What does it mean to do all of those things and still find a way to show up and move through the world? And that's what I mean by we have healing to do. That's our emotional work for sure. Girl, that just brought it full circle. This shit is deep. It is. It's really, really deep. It's not like emotional justice is not that fluffy, fluffy stuff. No. It's, it's real. No, this is like, I don't know, it's emotional justice, but it's, um, it's also a labor, a necessary labor, but a labor nonetheless. Definitely about a labor of love, but it's not a love that is just like a quick hit. It's the love that's about saying, I really want us to change how we are with one another in order to be with one another in ways that are, that are about justice, you know? And so right now, so often what happens, there's so much emotional labor done by black women in service of whiteness, in service of black men, in service of white, white men. There's so much emotional labor done by them. And there's so much expectation that they do more. You know, there can be no emotional justice without the equal division of emotional labor. I can't do your shit and you can't do mine. But if we both do our own, when we come together, it's lighter. It's lighter, it's easier, it's more loving, it's more expressive, it's more expensive. But it takes engagement and it takes time. And it does take us doing our emotional work. It's not, it's not magic and it never has been. Thank you, Esther. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you, sis. I really appreciate that. I love that we got to um, kiki and chat after brunching and breakfasting and, and lunching. It's good together. I just adore her. There are only like a certain number of my friends who I could mention that James Baldwin, Nikki Giovanni interview, and they would be like, yes, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. All the random information that's like stored in my head, I feel like Esther has like a very similar batch. She's just great. But again, her book, Emotional Justice, it's available for pre-sale on Amazon and it goes on sale October 11th. That is not everything, but it is what it is for this week. And we'll be back next week with our usual format. All right. Talk soon. Have a great weekend. Bye.